Would you open your Bibles again this morning to Romans 12? I say again for those of you who've been with us uh, in this series we began just two weeks ago now, the One Another series. And for those of you who are guests with us, uh, we've been studying some of the passages that really help us understand the Lord's command when he said to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. And we began that study in John 13 and John 15, looking at the two foundational concepts of Christ's love, sacrifice and service. He served, remember, as that household slave, washing the feet of disciples, taking upon himself the responsibility that was reserved for the ordinary household slave. He's the consummate servant. But ultimately, he went to the cross, didn't he? As sacrifice. And there's no greater love that a person could show for another one, Jesus said, than that he laid down his life for his friends, and Jesus has done that. So those themes of service and sacrifice are really two foundational pieces for what this love looks like. Well, last week we went to the book of Romans and to chapter 12 in particular and began to consider some of the particular teaching that the Apostle Paul brings to bear upon the early church, which helps us to understand the many different ways that our love for one another can and should be displayed. So I want to read this morning in Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. You follow along, please. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. We'll end our reading there, even though there's really this succession, almost of rapid-fire instructions and commands that come from the Apostle Paul. The four particular words that we're going to look at this morning, though, are characterized by that little term, one another. So you go back to verse 9, let love be genuine. There's an explanation of love. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. That's the second word we'll look at. The third phrase, right after that, outdo one another in showing honor. And then the fourth phrase is verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Now, let me remind you also of the words of our Lord. Back in John 13, 35, he said, by this will all People know that you're my disciples as you have love for one another. So this is really important, isn't it? I mean, Jesus refers to our love for one another as the distinguishing mark, the, the validation, if you will. There are many people who would say, oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Oh, I'm a Christian. People freely uh, willing to, to own that terminology. But the real proof will be in the way we live, the way we live toward one another. As a matter of fact, the apostle John writes uh, in another uh, place in the New Testament, 1 John, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Now that's a strong word. But can I say to you, in love and concern for your soul, if your life is not characterized by a consistent demonstration of genuine love for those around you, you are not born again. 
say, that, that's really strong, who are you to judge me? No, I'm bringing the word of God to bear. Those are the words of God himself. That's not the opinion of Danny Brooks. It's not the opinion of your best friend. It's not the opinion of any one of your family members. It's God's assessment of your life. So in other words, a person who shows no evidence of this kind of love really has no legitimate claim on Christ or on eternal life. Now here in Paul's letter, uh, we begin to, to look through these particular verses, 9 through 16, and see again some of the very uh, practical and personal ways that we love one another. So let's go first of all to verse 9 and consider that uh, we are being called to a love that is genuine toward one another. Look at the text with me, if you will. And by the way, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, whether on your phone or if you brought a, you know, an iPad or something like that or the old-fashioned printed pages, uh, there is a copy in the book rack in front of you, and we'd love for you to follow along uh, because we're not here to share our opinions. We're here to consider God's word. So look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Now, this term for love, when it is used with reference to God's love, speaks of his willful, intentional direction toward us, humans. It involves God doing what he knows is best for us and, and not necessarily what we might want him to do. So what, what do you mean, what's best for us as opposed to what we might want him to do? Well, if we pause for just a moment and go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 2, and three, God creates man and woman, puts them in Eden. It's a beautiful, perfect environment, but they sin. And what's the first act of fallen humans? They run from God. They hide from him. Remember the whole fig leaf thing? It took me years to realize. That's why some of those statues that are beyond my comprehension have fig leaves over certain parts of the human body. Should have connected that long ago. But it shows you kind of the foolish attempt that Adam and Eve, in their sin, made to hide from God. But God, in his mercy, came looking for them. I submit to you that sin is so devastating to human nature that if God left us alone, we'd be perfectly content for him to leave us alone. But in his love, he knows that's not best for us. So God comes toward us, moving into our world, which is fearful initially, Adam and Eve were not happy to see God come into the garden looking for them. Oh, he knew where they were. He just needed them to come to terms with the fact that they had sinned, they had rebelled. Well, that's the kind of love that God demonstrates to us. As a matter of fact, earlier in the book of Romans, if you wanted to turn back a couple of pages very quickly, you'll see that Paul has previously talked about God's love. Back in chapter 5, verse 5, Paul has written, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. There could be no simpler explanation or demonstration of the kind of love we're talking about. God sees us in our weakness. God sees us in our sinfulness and says, you want to see my love on display? I'm coming toward you, and specifically I'm moving toward you through my son, Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death on the cross, taking your place, taking all of your sin on himself so that you might not have to be put to death as a sinner, but that you might live as a forgiven sinner. That's the kind of love we're talking about. 
So it's not a love that looks for the attractive, a love that looks for the desirable, a love that somehow says, you know what, if I could have a relationship with that person, there'd be great benefit to me. No, this love says, who's around me that has a need? Where are the hurting people? Where are the people who've been marginalized and, and ignored and kind of shoved to the corners of the community? Those are the people that in a godlike way we are called to love. Let love be genuine. That's a pretty strong adjective to attach to this kind of love. Helpful for us. It's a word that just means without hypocrisy or pretense. And I gotta tell you, this is tough. Because by nature, it, we want to love people who can bring some kind of benefit back into our world, don't we? It's kind of like capitalism. Goods and services, products, you know, skills, whatever it is, we're all kind of trading up because there are things I need that I can't supply for myself, and so I go find somebody who does, and that's why I'm either willing to put you know, cash on the table or I trade a certain number of hours for an employer. I mean, capitalism is a pretty remarkable system, but we're not talking a capitalistic kind of love that says, you know, I got some needs. You look like you could meet those needs. I'll trade you the currency of love if I can get something in return. No, what, what the Lord is actually calling us to is that, that same type of Christ-like love that sacrifices and serves others without any hidden agenda. It just says, I want to love you because I've been loved by God. See, one of the questions we wrestle with is, how can I keep my love genuine? Well, it's probably never going to be pure in its motive. And, and God in his kindness has actually developed a system where when we really begin to love others, we do, in fact, get some things back. There's great blessing there. But the only way that I know to keep my heart where it should be, even though, even though I have sometimes sinful or alternative motives kind of bleeding into my desire to love in this way, is, is first to remember that God loved me while I was weak and sinful. God loved you while, while you were weak and sinful. We need to think often that Christ shed his blood for our sins. He didn't die on the cross because the guy down the street is so really creepy and cruddy. Yeah, that, that guy's scary. He's a sinner. No, he died for you. He died for me. We need to remember that God forgave us freely for Christ's sake. He didn't actually forgive any of us, doesn't forgive us even on this day because we're so sorrowful, so repentant, so sincere when we say we'll never do that again. No, Ephesians 4.32 says he forgives for Christ's sake. When we remember the nature of God's love and our own salvation, which is all of grace and all of his mercy, then we're in a right position to start moving toward others with genuine love. Sometimes we think that because we can't love people perfectly, we, maybe we shouldn't even try. But that's not what God has for us. It's not what he's calling us to. I want you to think, of, think for a moment of some of the ways that you can actually love others around you genuinely. And that love is going to be expressed in, in a variety of ways. This is part of the beauty of the body of Christ. We're all gifted differently. We looked at that last week, didn't we, from the first part of this text. 
God has actually assigned us particular gifts and then wants us to go to work using them. That's why we could all be looking at the same person with the same need. Uh, some of our members have had physical needs lately, so I'll just use that as an example. And, and so let's say we're all kind of standing in a circle looking at this particular need, and you know what's interesting? Somebody's going to see that need, and they're going to jump in with service. They just want to roll up their sleeves and get busy and say, you know what, we need to organize meals, and somebody needs to be there to help care for them and show and do. Somebody's going to need to take her back to the doctor for a follow-up exam, and somebody's going to need to be there to help him with whatever that particular, they're thinking in terms of service. There's another person in that same circle of love who actually says, I wonder if anybody's called them just to say, we love you, we're praying for you. Um, and, and they're not thinking about actually running to the grocery store or doing errands. They're just they're thinking about loving in that particular way. Someone else says, you know, I, I'm just going to drop by. I'm sure that she would love for somebody to just kind of be there. Maybe I can go sit with her for an hour. And somebody else is saying, sit with her for an hour? Man, that, that's terrible. <laughs> oh, hold on. It's not terrible. It's a different expression of love, isn't it? And that's why somebody else thinks in terms of, you know what, I'm actually going to get up a little extra early tomorrow morning just to pray for them. And so you're content just to kind of be behind the scenes, quietly, faithfully praying. Someone else is like, I got to give that person a hug. And someone else says, I'm going to send him a card. And they write these beautiful notes. Do you ever get any cards like that, that both the handwriting and the words are beautiful? And you think to yourself, oh man. The point is, it's all love, and it's all genuine. And just because your love doesn't look exactly like somebody else's doesn't mean that you should kind of keep it to yourself as if we're all trying to love in one way. We're actually not, and that's not what God has designed. Loving others is a vital expression of the love we have received and experienced of God. And failure to love others in this way demonstrates that we do not actually possess salvation. I already mentioned one passage in 1 John uh, chapter 3. Listen to 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now let me be very quick to say, Actively loving like this doesn't earn you salvation. It's the proof of your salvation. But whoever hates his brother, verse 11, is in the darkness and walks or lives in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I say this with, with great concern in my heart that some of you would think you can go through the motions of a, kind, a form of Christianity or a form of faith and yet not possess the real relationship with Jesus Christ that is transformational. Here is, here is a way to assess, given us by God, what is the measure of your love? Is it genuine? Not perfect. That's not what he's asking for. Just a sincere, yeah, I, I see evidence of that. I really do care about others and, I, and I'm trying to actively demonstrate to them, demonstrate that to them. Well, that's a good mark. But if you can't look at your life right now and say, well, here are the, genuine, the, the points of genuine love, maybe it's because you've never entered into a saving relationship with this God. So it's a love that is genuine toward one another. Secondly, it's a love that is devoted 
toward one another. Look at verse 10 with me back in Romans 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. Our love reflects God's family love for us. That's what the terminology here has to do with. Uh, you may have heard this before if you've been in any kind of a Bible class or heard sermons or messages similar to this, but this is the, the same word that, uh, that lies at the root of the, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And I know that's where we make all kinds of jokes about Philadelphia, right? But this terminology has to do with the tender affection that characterizes uh, a, a natural family. And again, I'm mindful that some of you didn't come from families that were healthy and whole. Rather, there was a lot of dysfunction there. But even the dysfunction stands as a contrast to what you know in your soul should have characterized your household, right? Brotherly affection is a term of close relationship. And so Paul is saying we need to love one another with the affection or love that brothers have. That's why sometimes even in trying to describe a friendship that you may have enjoyed in life or been benefiting from, you might say to someone, you know what, that guy was like a brother to me, even though biologically you don't share the same DNA. But there was such closeness, such, such tender affection, such loyalty and strengthen that relationship that in trying to describe how valuable that relationship is to you, you use the terms, he was like a brother, or you might say she was like a sister. You use some of the closest family terms that we know on planet Earth, and that's what God is saying. The love that we have in an assembly like this, one for another, ought to be that kind of family love. So we're actively loving one another in a genuine way. We're looking at one another and saying, that's my brother, it's my sister, brother, sister, brother. And, and right around we're saying we're family because we share one God and one Father, one Savior. Amen. We're to be people who love one another with tender affection, devotion. You know, I hope that even brings even more significance to when we gather whether it be on a Sunday morning like this or a Thursday night for prayer or some of the neighborhood visitation that we've been doing or more picnics in the park, which we will do, or when the summer hits, we've got some other ministry special events planned, concerts in the park, and um, just a, a, number of, a number of things that I'm excited about. And, and we don't do those just because churches should have events. No, we do that because churches are a family and families should be together. And there's a lot of stuff that happens during the week that that we have to tend to. We don't all work in the same office complex or the same manufacturing plant or the same retail setting. We gotta go earn bread, sweat of our brow, right? But we can also set aside those times to say, let's get together, the family is meeting Thursday night. The family's gonna be out at Riverton City Park Sunday after church. We are family. So let me just say very practically, how do you begin to love in this way? Well, open your eyes to what's around you. Just start looking for needs. And if you're not seeing any at the moment, just say, Lord, would you show me a need? I guarantee you there will be one almost immediately. And some of them are going to be a little scary and uncomfortable for you. It's like, oh, I, Lord, I was praying that you'd show me a need, but I didn't want to see that need. <laughs> well, maybe the Lord is saying, I want to teach you some things. I want you to learn to sacrifice and serve. We've been in 1 John a couple of times already. Let me go back to that passage. He says so much about love for one another. And in chapter 3, verses 17 and following, he writes, If anyone has the world's goods 
and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See, what he's pointing up is a contradiction, especially for people who say, oh, we're followers of Jesus. And, and Jesus, who is ultimate service, ultimate example of sacrifice, we all love that about him, but we turn around and see a, a small need in comparison because I could never pay the sin debt of another person off, but Jesus paid my sin debt. And, and yet we close up our emotions to that person and walk away. And, and his point is, that's such a contradiction. How, how can you walk away from your family member or your friend who has such a need and say that you are Christ? You can't. You can't. So he goes on to write, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Sometimes you don't need to say a word, you just need to get busy. So we love in a genuine way. We devote ourselves in that same love one to another. Number three, look at the second part of verse 10. It's a love that honors one another. And look at how he describes this. Outdo one another in showing honor. If there's ever to be any competition in a church family, this is where it is. We don't compete for status or standing or power or control. Jesus is the head. We leave all of that to him. But you know where we do seek to like, outdo one another? In showing honor. I, I was thinking this is a very simple and almost silly illustration, but have you ever been entering a building and, and you hit the doors at the same time and two of you stand back and open the door for the other? It's like, you go, you go first. No, you go ahead. No, no, you go first, please. And it's almost like this uncomfortable little argument ensues of who's actually going to defer to the other and go first. Well, that really is a sense of what Paul is trying to communicate here. Outdo one another in showing honor. What would that look like in our setting? It would just look like people continually putting the needs of others ahead of their own. There are things that make us uncomfortable anytime a, a bunch of people get together. But we overlook those things and we focus on the precious souls that God has partnered us with. I'm mindful too, I'm glad that Seth and Haley uh, are the age they are, which means you know coming into church that they're relatively well behaved. But um, some of you heard the little Velcro rhythm band that broke out here in the front row this morning. That's the nature of little kids. They just do stuff. There's lots of energy and activity. And I think sometimes, you know, when you haven't been around that for a while, you can start feeling like, man, whose kid is that? (laughs) We're trying to worship Jesus here. No, actually, we need to honor even the little ones. Now, there's discipline and correction that has to happen, and we can do that. Um, I've been there, and Kristen, you know, through the years as I've been pastoring and typically, you know, with responsibilities like this, I'm not seated next to my kids, you know, in the front row, and she was there, and there are many, many songs she wasn't able to sing fully or sermons to listen to completely because kids needed attention, so we're sympathetic with that, but that'd be one little example, wouldn't it, of how we can just show honor, of how we can outdo one another in showing that esteem. 
you know, later in the book of Romans, just two chapters beyond this, Paul will actually address some things that were really hard for the church at Rome. And they're common to every church. Differences of opinion, even with reference to how we serve Jesus that were becoming points of contention and division in the church. And for instance, if, you, if we could go read that portion, we'd find that the church at Rome was struggling with some really significant things, and, and they are, uh, of how you worship God. And some were saying, you should never eat meat that's been offered to idols. And many of those people have been saved out of a background of idolatry. And to even think about going back to a, a meat market, which often was attached to the backside of a temple, and you could buy these you know, great cuts of meat at a, a really good, at a really good price. But for them, they're saying, but I know what happened inside the temple. And God saved me from that life of idolatry. I don't even want to be near that meat. And so they, they were abstaining. And there were others who were saying, you know what, I, I've, I'm grateful for my salvation, but that's not really my background. And Honestly, there's not a lot of protein in our diet, which there wasn't in the first century, not making that up, and it's nice to have a good cut of meat, and that's really good meat at a really good price. Let's go get some meat. And so these two people called by God to repent of their sins and put their faith in him are worshiping together, and some are starting to find out what the other does or doesn't do, and it's becoming a point of contention. And Paul actually doesn't settle the argument once and for all and tell them whether they should eat the meat or not. He actually says what you need to do is welcome one another. Don't let your life be about that particular issue. And so you know what the meat eaters would do? If they were going to honor the non-meat eaters, then they'd be real careful how they practice that. You wouldn't knowingly invite one of those people over to your house for steak that you had purchased at the temple market. Because that could actually put a spiritual stumbling block in front of them. And you know what? We're going to find points of difference. We've already found some. I mean, if you live with anybody long enough, you'll find out they were brought up in a certain uh, way of thinking or certain area of the country. There are cultural differences and, and spiritual practices that are, that are different household to household. But those are things that we, we, we release and we give care to one another and show the value of others. And Paul actually wrote in Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Do you see how our love always goes back to him, the way he's loved us? Service and sacrifice. God welcomes you and me knowing that we don't have it all figured out. We don't serve him and love him perfectly, but he stands there with open arms as it were saying, come here, I love you. That's what our love should be. Well, fourth, back to verse 16 in chapter 12, it's a love that is harmonious toward one another. Live in harmony. A friend shared this sage advice uh, about a week ago Friday. Don't criticize someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. But then he went on to say, that way, when you criticize them, they won't be able to hear you from that distance, (laughs) plus you'll have their shoes. I said to him, thanks for sharing. That might actually make it into my sermon. <laughs> now, the first part of that is, is where the real wisdom is. And I think, in a sense, that's some of the, the, the tone of what Paul is saying. That when we begin to love one another, God brings us into relationship. And this idea of harmony that he is putting before us is certainly not that 
uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be expressed in that particular way. So no, that's not what he means. Probably the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word harmony is of music, right? And whether it's the blending of voices or instruments, whether or not we've been formally trained like some of our musicians here, we all know beautiful harmony when we hear it. And that's why the various groups through the ages, I mean, it's just curious to me how every, every generation kind of has its favorite groups, whether vocally or instrumentally, and in part because they, they can blend their voices, they can blend their instruments in beautiful music. Now, while Paul doesn't have musical harmony particularly in mind, it is the same kind of concept because in the same way that it takes musicians who ultimately are thinking on the same tunes and texts and, and bring their voices together, Paul is actually saying you need to think about the same stuff. That's what's going to bring you into harmony. And it's not just that we all agree that, that, that we kind of put out, you know, ten things on the table and say, do we like these or not? And we vote and say seven of these we do and three we don't. So therefore we have harmony on those seven uh, topics or ideas. No, ultimately what we are seeking to do is, is to reach agreement in the things that God has stated are important. We're called to live a life in harmony with one another because we reach agreement in God. Now, some of this harmony, if you're in chapter 12, look at verse 15 with me. Because here's another aspect of harmony that is important. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. See, that's where we're entering into the pain and the joy, the suffering, the sorrow, the successes. We're entering into that with one another, with this kind of love, and we share that. And so our rejoicing alongside them and our weeping along with them creates a beautiful harmony. It's not unlike what we heard earlier with some of those songs. And again, beautiful text that we're learning here. And my only frustration right now at some of those moments is I don't, I don't know these things well enough to just like really cut it loose. But I'm so grateful that, that our team up here is, is not only leading us in learning these things, but they're also modeling for us in a, in a musical way the very kind of spiritual truth that Paul is talking here. They're harmonizing with one another. And that's a beautiful thing when rather than everybody being on the melody line, one or two or more of them break off and that harmony creates this fuller sound, a richer experience for us, and there's beauty that accompanies our worship. And you know, that kind of harmony creates a beauty about the spiritual life that God has called us to. One author writes, this unity is less the result of accommodation to the other person's point of view than it is the result of arriving at a mutual understanding of God's way of thinking. Like spokes in a wheel that converge at the hub, the closer we individually are to God, the closer we come to one another. Paul admonishes his readers not to be proud since it is pride more than anything else that destroys the harmony of the body. Let love be genuine. Let love be a family-like devotion. Let love be that visible demonstration that we actually want to outdo one another in the way we honor each other. And let love be harmonious. Harmonious. 